Welcome to the Russian Contingency with Michael Kaufman. For listeners, I am not Michael Kaufman. My name is Aaron Stein, Chief Content Officer at War on the Rocks. And for this episode, we're going to do things a little differently. I'm going to host the show, and Mike, uh, whose name is on the show, is actually going to be the guest. So, Mike, it's good to be with you on your own podcast. Yeah, it's good to be with myself on my own podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I, I think for listeners, maybe a little formatting note is that Mike has been traveling a lot, and so he's been doing a lot of the interviews himself. But as we move forward with this podcast, uh, I may pop on more and more to act as the host uh, so that you all can hear more of Mike and, and his thoughts on all things Russia. And today's topic, we're going to divert a little bit from the war in Ukraine and talk about escalation dynamics and really looking back at the history of Russian nuclear doctrine, which has been at the forefront of a lot of people's minds, uh, particularly given the return and salience of nuclear weapons with conflict in Europe. So, Mike, I know you and your colleague Anya sort of wrote the opus on this. We, we, we published it in War on the Rocks a couple of months ago. But why don't you just kick us off with your thoughts on sort of like the discussion about the, the, the nuclear topic with Russia and where, where it's going and perhaps the history. Sure. So, first, just a lay it out that this is a vast topic. It's a vast topic of interest in the research. And the research on this, you know, is at best incomplete. I think I, along with colleagues from my team, like Anya Fink, took a look at it a couple of years ago. It was an evolving debate over the last several decades. Other colleagues who had written on extensively were Chris von Bruzgaard, Dima Domsky. I actually just saw both of them uh, in Germany. And we had a sort of narrow private conversation on the subject where you know, we do even even having spent a lot of time looking at it, we have our own kind of narrow lane, uh, what I call narcissisms of small differences in the subject matter. But my my general sense of it is that when we talk about nuclear strategy, we principally talk about the political and military outlooks and the ones that are clearest are the outlooks of the military. At least that was the deep dive that my team did a couple of years back. And to be clear, use of nuclear weapons is fundamentally a political decision, right? It is shaped and informed by uh, military thinking, military strategy, because the military comes up with concepts of operations. It has to actually do the technology acquisition, the exercising to make some of these courses of action viable. And, of course, tries to shape a political decision makers thinking on, you know, what the likelihood of success is, what might be preferable and what have you. But. At the end of the day, individual leaders have their own views. And uh, oftentimes, across the board, when you look at political military interactions, you see the supremacy of the political. You saw it in the initial concept of operations for this war in Ukraine. And you'll also see it extensively in conversations on nuclear use. The military has all sorts of preferences. And often it comes up with what you might call uh, different strategies, right? Like hedging strategies of, of different types to create options. The military likes to create options for political leadership and political leadership at the end of the day, though, has their own views and they can very, very well impose them on the military. The general track I've seen in, in Russian military thought was to have a, a fairly uh, coherent approach that began to emerge out of what might have what might constitute a series of debates and to an extent incoherence in the 1990s. And that approach essentially focused on building out options and trying to align sort of type, types of wars conflicts as you see them in the military doctrine, large scale war, regional war, a local war or an armed conflict, right? With a potential means that are being used to either manage escalation or attain war termination in those conflicts, right? So, if, you know, at the bottom tiers is general purpose forces, 
Then at the higher tiers, it's element of the strategic deterrence forces with the use of strategic conventional capabilities, like long-range precision guy weapons, uh, but not necessarily limited to kinetic weapons, to limited use of nuclear, uh, of non-strategic nuclear weapons to try to achieve particular effects. And then, you know, eventually at sort of the, the highest tier in, in the typology of wars, to actual use of nuclear weapons for warfight, right? You know, the challenge you have is that there have been different interpretations of Russian, both Russian nuclear strategy and also even thornier Russian political views on the subject. And these views have evolved over time, right? Russian debate has, has evolved over time in balancing, you know, nuclear deterrence with pursuing what, what they call sort of non-nuclear deterrence, conventional use of conventional capabilities in looking at uh, kind of what kind of damage they might want to inflict, right? Maybe focusing on unacceptable levels of damage that are calculated for strategic nuclear retaliation versus deterrent levels of damage that are subjective and, and are calibrated to a specific target when you're, when you're discussing the question of limited nuclear use. Understanding that the amount of damage you may inflict, let's say, against Sweden would be very different amount of damage you need to inflict against the United States to achieve the same effects. Uh, so these sort of conversations. Anyway, this is a kind of introduction, but let's dig into it a bit because it is a fascinating area of study. It's also very much a Dr. Strangelove stylistically area of study when you talk about the conversation and where it takes it. Yeah, I mean, I, I think for listeners, if we could maybe go back, and I'm not talking about going through the history of Russian thinking about this, but, you know, they first uh, detonate the bomb in 1949, and I think it's widely accepted that the sort of early emphasis on the Soviet side in this case was to achieve parity with the United States, which they do by the 1970s, right? And then the 1970s is sort of like the start of the era of arms control leading into the 1990s. I'm being very broad here, obviously. But could you put this sort of into context? You talked about the 1990s and how those debates shaped current thinking. Um, can you sort of like zoom out even further a little bit, put it all into context, and then we can dive back in to where we are all now, sort of in that subjective and objective ideas of, uh, of how to control escalation dynamics and where to use nuclear weapons, perhaps even on a battlefield? Okay. Actually, you know what? Let's, let's go back briefly. Let's go back to this history you just went through because – I, th I think it would be helpful. And I'm going to give what I think is an idiot's guide to it, where I will be the idiot doing the guide. And, and everything I say will probably be disagreeable in the sense that every every historian on the subject will, will disagree with it immediately, because I'm going to try to cover it in, you know, two minutes. First, so you have essentially avenue nuclear weapons, right? After World War II, when nuclear weapons come about, but let's do this from the Soviet Union's perspective, largely. Uh, it's initially kind of assumed that the next war will still involve large conventional formations and nuclear weapons will either be used against cities, counter value, the way the United States used them, or they will be used to break open uh, big parts of the front so that conventional mechanized formations can flow through and essentially have kind of a World War II plus nuclear weapons approach, right? Then you have after Stalin's death, Khrushchev basically looking at and saying, hey, we have this large conventional military but it's essentially designed to fight World War III as World War II. But World War III is going to be primarily a nuclear war. The conventional phase of operations will be short. What matters is the actual nuclear side of the equation. You need to focus on nuclear weapons, cut the conventional force. Also, a big driver of the Soviet strategic nuclear buildup is to achieve parity and status, right? Nuclear weapons are significant for status. Status is instrumental in international affairs, particularly instrumental if you are the challenging power rivaling a superpower 
you know, and you're arguing for both your leadership of the socialist world and you're trying to position yourself as co-equal on the international stage, right? And it turns out that nuclear weapons emerged after World War II as a major driver of status, whereas before World War II, no nuclear weapons exist. It's not a status thing people fight for. Okay. So you have the, the thinking about what a potential Soviet-NATO war might look like begin to shift into a notion that there's going to be a very limited conventional phase. The conventional phase will then set up a nuclear uh, exchange, right? And so I'm thinking actually is that the nuclear exchange will be sustained. I think in popularized impressions, it's a sort of strategic nuclear exchange where, you know, one side goes first, another side goes second, and maybe what's left of the first side's nuclear arsenal retaliates, and that's kind of it. But Soviet Union is actually planning for a sustained strategic nuclear exchange. So there's a nuclear war. You know, they're investing in civil defense. They plan to survive parts of the first strike. And uh, and there's a whole whole aspect of this that is focused on primarily uh, having a back and forth with strategic nuclear weapons. Okay, but the United States is incredibly advantaged in terms of offensive strategic nuclear forces during this time, during the 50s and 60s. Incredibly advantaged during the Cuban Missile Crisis, right? It's it's um, it, it, you know it, it's not the kind of superiority that may be politically meaningful, but it's the kind of superiority that to defense planners and strategists was very meaningful at the time. All right, so then you have this whole phase in the 1960s. As you get towards latter 1960s, there are assumptions about nuclear use and escalation. And the assumptions are that, okay, once you have theater nuclear use of any kind, it will then lead to strategic nuclear exchange, right? And that escalation can't be controlled. But towards the latter 1960s, you begin to see a conversation on the Soviet side that, well, there are some options for limited nuclear use, and but in particular, that the threshold between conventional nuclear and theater nuclear use and strategic nuclear use isn't so easy in terms of uh, it being just a slippery slope. But once you get started on it, you go from conventional war to theater nuclear exchange to strategic nuclear exchange, right? Yep. There's actually a prospect for a longer phase of conventional operations, and they begin to envision the possibility that you could have a you could have a conventional conflict that doesn't automatically lead to strategic nuclear exchange. It starts to become more differentiated. All right. But remember, a lot of thinking of nuclear weapons, nuclear strategy is also driven by technology that's available at the time and the kind of operations you can come up with. For example, it's it's a lot easier to talk about second strike nuclear capability once you have the, the actual technology and the ability to achieve it. Your confidence in, in warning systems, you have survivable uh, strategic nuclear forces and, and all that jazz. All right. So moving forward through uh, 60s into kind of 70s and, and uh, from my point of view, from 70s into 80s. You have like relative strategic parity in the 70s, as you said, right? And then you have uh, Brezhnev's famous Tula speech and the increasing realization that, at least on the Soviet side, that nuclear weapons are not useful as political instruments and that they've essentially negated themselves. This is kind of like the Soviet adaptation of Hegelian dialogue and discourse on negation, which is nuclear weapons have negated themselves because it's not clear how a nuclear exchange can lead to a political victory for either side. Therefore, they're not particularly useful instruments of politics, right? And so Soviet uh, general staff, led by Marshal Garkov, who's famous military thinker in the, Soviet, in the Soviet military, you know, his reign is kind of about, I think, 77 to 84, begins to lead the conversation in a different direction. Essentially that, hey, Soviet Union is really falling behind technologically on the conventional side. The United States is trying to develop a limited conventional, uh, an independent conventional war option. As the United States is trying to get out of the notion that they would need nuclear escalation in order to win a conventional war with the Soviet Union and Europe. And 
you see the sort of revolution of precision, or at least what people are calling a revolution back then, and you see the early onset of precision-guided weapons fused with the, the sensors and the ability to employ them effectively, and Soviet military begins discussing, in fact, that, hey, at the very least, tactical nuclear weapons or theater nuclear weapons can begin to move into an escalation management role because conventional weapons are going to be able to do the job that previously, you know, tactical nuclear weapons were going to be doing in a war in 60s and 70s. Like the way you just described it is not at least how I hear a lot of Americans discuss how Soviets think about this. You know, if you leave from this with the Brezhnev era into the Gorbachev era, and then it's the idea that the Soviet Union was running out of money and that Gorbachev was talking about the idea that he had to disinvest or at least couldn't keep up to, couldn't keep up with the United States, that, that this the, the amount of nuclear weapons was becoming cumbersome and therefore you know, more radical or robust approaches to arms control was actually favorable to the Soviet Union. And this is here where you talk about the 1986 Reykjavik summit with Ronald Reagan and sort of concerns about American missile defenses. But you're talking about sort of within the military thinking, this idea that, you know, the idea that that, that uh, something far deeper than this idea that the Soviet Union was quite literally running out of money, um, but, uh, but, but how it impacted how they were employing and thinking about nuclear weapons. So you're right, but you're getting a bit ahead of the story. We're, we're, we're almost there. We're almost there to the mid 1980s. So it's clear to the Soviet Union, uh, even in the 70s, that they have very serious economic issues, right? And it's clear to everybody before Gorbachev, right? Gorbachev gets de facto selected because it's obvious to everybody before them that something needs to change, all right? There's a couple of things taking place on the Soviet side, and I'm incredibly oversimplifying it, but it's clear that you know, from from an investment technology standpoint, Soviet Union uh, is is investing a lot more in second strike systems and survival systems, having initially done a crash buildup with sort of liquid fuel silo based ICBMs. Soviet Union is increasingly sort of chasing conventional parity with the United States and with NATO. But Ogarkov's vision of a transformation of the Soviet military has one big problem. It's incredibly expensive. Okay, and the political leadership sees where he's going with his thinking, which is essentially, hey, we need to continue the technological uh, rivalry with the United States and focus on the conventional side of the equation. Since the political leadership has determined that, you know, you really can't attain victory in a nuclear war uh, and chase the United States down the rabbit hole of an independent conventional war, the prospect of independent conventional war in Europe. The problem is that that's a very favorable proposition from standpoint of competitive strategy for the United States. Because the United States has the money and it has the technological lead. And the Soviet Union doesn't. And the political leadership realizes that, hey, Ogarkov is not aligned with the overall strategy of the trajectory of the Soviet Union and uh, shuffles them off, right? Essentially demotes them after um, 34. But part of the reason for that is, of course, because Soviet Union begins to pursue more of a defensive strategy and is trying to reduce the cost of the competition. But what I'm talking about is what's happening on the military side, how the military is looking at nuclear weapons. Also, many of the military's kind of fanciful plans uh, run into uh, practical challenges. For example, at this point, you can't be seriously talking about any limited theater nuclear exchange just confined to Europe, because that is essentially a strategic nuclear strike. And the net effect and the synergistic effect of using nuclear weapons and that size operations would, would have uh, been devastating. And there was a general assumption that it would lead them to a strategic exchange between the homelands, between the United States and the Soviet Union. So limited nuclear war fighting options weren't, from my point of view, very much very viable or that seriously considered. What was considered 
was the prospect for sustained conventional war prior to nuclear use. But I think much of the time in kind of 70s and going into the 80s, the Soviet Union's main debate was uh, in, a, in a kind of World War III with NATO, was a sort of, do we nuke them now or do we nuke them later? And the debate essentially is, does the Soviet Union uh, wait for NATO to have to use tactical nuclear weapons to stop a Soviet conventional assault and then retaliate against NATO forces? Or does the Soviet Union launch a preemptive nuclear strike on NATO nuclear forces and NATO nuclear forces sort of look like they're prepared to use their nuclear weapons? But it's also a big problem with, um, uh, with U.S. intermediate range nuclear forces in Europe and tactical nuclear forces is that the United States position them also to set up a, you know, a kind of user lose scenario for itself. So a Soviet uh, large scale offensive or conventional operation in the theater would have put the U.S. and NATO towards choices on tactical nuclear use potentially relatively early on. OK, so fast forward to the part you're discussing with Gorbachev. So Gorbachev comes in. And to some extent, like Khrushchev, he looks at it and he says, okay, Soviet Union's only viable strategy is to reduce the cost of competition. The best way to do that is arms control, right? The EBM treaty was particularly useful for both sides, but it was very useful for Soviet Union back in the 70s because the Soviet Union was always concerned about at least a, a what, you could, what you could essentially call a, a three-pillar competition, a competition on quantity of strategic nuclear forces, a competition on quality of nuclear forces, and a very expensive potential competition on missile defense. And they were very happy to take off the table the potential uh, costs of a missile defense competition. Yeah, for listeners, ABM is the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty. Go ahead, Mike. Yeah, so, okay, so basically, Gorbachev looks at the situation and realizes that the Soviet Union needs to conduct a whole host of economic reforms, that they need to downsize the cost of foreign policy, that they're funding all these uh, regimes around the world that are communist in name only, and they need to reduce the cost of competition, the so-called third world, with British and had expanded, despite the fact that Soviet economic resources were dwindling, and do all these things. When it came to the military, you know, INF Treaty is a good example, right? General staff was really upset that uh, uh, the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty, right? In seven, general staff was very upset that uh, Gorbachev threw in the OCA system, which was technically an SRBM, but but the United States had argued that it actually fought that it fell under the the remit of the INF and had recently been developed and deployed, you know, by a Soviet Union and the put into warship pack countries. And the modern system that you hear a lot about today, Iskander SS26, is really in many ways a successor of uh, of the system. Okay. But Gorbachev's entire strategy is reduce costs. Yes, the Soviet military will be really unhappy, uh, but it's the only way to, to be able to, to sustain things. Uh, during this time period, in the latter 1980s, you see Soviet military doctrine, I think 87 and afterwards, begin to also adopt this much more defensive tone, right? Because Soviet military thinking begins switching from the earlier mindset that lasted much of the Cold War that in the initial war, the job of the Soviet military is to displace the fight from Soviet territory and from worship pack territory, where it's going to be, onto NATO territory and to conduct a strategic conventional ground defensive, right, along with a strategic airspace operation. And that the doctrine actually is now much more defensive in nature, right? And they're trying to work their way through the early redefining of what is actually the job of Soviet military, what, what is the strategy dictate for them. What's Soviet military strategy going to be? 
if the Soviet Union no longer plans to fight the war in this way. And this is a transitional period going to the 90s. Okay, let's get much closer to where we are now. So in during the 1990s, you you have the, the collapse of funding for uh, what was the Soviet army. You have its redistribution along successor states. You have the incredibly traumatic period of Soviet formations all returning from Central and Eastern Europe to no basis, right? There are no bases waiting for them. So they have to redeploy back to Russia, but they were always forward deployed. And you have still Russia having this mass inheritance of an army designed to fight NATO, but without the funding or necessarily the mission for it. And during this time, of course, Russia tries to invest in maintaining its nuclear forces the most, but you see everybody desperately competing for very limited resources. And you see people on the nuclear side of the equation, both in nuclear forces. And by nuclear force, I'm using a broad brush, right? We have RVSN, strategic rocket forces. We have long range aviation in uh, the Air Force at the time, which are strategic bombers. Uh, we have ballistic missile submarines that belong to the Navy. And, you know, and then we have uh, the various theater nuclear forces, right? That, that Russia inherits a very large arsenal of non strategic nuclear weapons as well. So there's a lot of debates of what to do with them. And it's very clear to, I think, Russian, uh, to the Russian military, especially after both the defeat in the first Chechen war, 9496, but also U.S. intervention in, uh, in Kosovo, what's called the Kosovo Air War or the, the strike campaign against Yugoslavia. The, look, the United States can very rapidly achieve conventional military superiority. The Russian military doesn't stand much of a chance, so it has to be overly dependent on nuclear weapons and whether it's, you know, strategic nuclear weapons that are borne by the Air Force side, long range aviation, or if it's tactical nuclear weapons, but this is the only guarantor of Russian sovereignty uh, against a, in the event of any, of, of any conflict with the United States or with NATO. All right. And so there's, but the sense of there's a very uncomfortable over dependence on this and there's a real debate over, the the prospect or the utility of limited nuclear use. Yeah, go ahead. So I mean that raises a question because you often hear this in in in, in this in, on the U.S. side is that you know because of conventional inferiority that 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 they inherit in the 1990s as a result of the economic calamity and the collapse of the Soviet Union is that nuclear weapons achieved this more salience just as you're talking about were people comfortable with that <laughs> you know this idea that the conventional forces this 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 investment that they had wanted to make perhaps in the late 1970s and the early 1980s, they can see the direction of which conflict is going, of which war is going. Uh, they want to keep up. They, they fundamentally cannot. And so you end up in a place where they are forced to rely in this defensive type posture on nuclear weapons. Are people in Moscow sitting around happy about this, you know, uh, uh, in terms of where they're at? Or is this just the circumstances that they're dealt? No, they're pretty unhappy about it. And by the way, in the latter part of the 90s and early 2000s, they quickly discover that one of Russia's only claims to status that they're trying to use instrumentally to pursue interest in international politics, nuclear weapons, doesn't actually get them all that much. The United States is either – first, it's very clear in the interactions between Yeltsin and uh, Bilden that the United States is, is largely driving the show, and Russia is very much – uh, inferior in this interaction. But under Putin as well, it's very clear to the Russians that actually nuclear weapons don't get you nearly as much international politics than you think they might. That you kind of also need to have the economy and you also need to have a political economic model of development. 
and you have all these other things. And nuclear weapons are, you know, they're useful to an extent for SAS, but they're far less useful than people think. And they're not that useful in in uh, in contests over particular issues, like for example, the NATO intervention in uh, Kosovo, right? Sorry, and I, I know this is debated. This is debated among scholars uh, and analysts. How useful are nuclear weapons, and how useful is nuclear superiority uh, in these contests? I'm a big skeptic of it. There's then a there's there's a kind of period where you see Russian military thinking uh, start to evolve in in discourse on uh, kind of layers of deterrence. So you have strategic nuclear weapons essentially assigned to a global a kind of global uh, layer of deterrence, and then you have non-strategic nuclear weapons assigned to a more regional layer of deterrence. And then you see over time them trying to build out. Well, a ladder is always a bad analogy, but we tend to intellectually fall to it. Uh, the sense that conventional forces backed by strategic conventional capabilities, right, more advanced capabilities, whether it's uh, long-range precision guy weapons, integrated air defense, missile defense, counter-satellite, electronic warfare, or offensive cyber capabilities can handle this range of conflicts, right? Then non-strategic nuclear weapons used singularly or as part of group strike, right, can be employed to limit escalation in that conflict. What does limiting escalation mean? Well, limiting escalation, actually, there are really good cases of it in this war. Nuclear signaling to limit escalation. For example, you're in a war, you're using uh, overt or, let's say, subtle and not so subtle nuclear threats to limit other parties from directly intervening in the war that you're involved in. Second, you're using it to limit horizontal escalation, how to what extent the war spreads geographically. Third, you're limiting other parties who are material parties to the war in what capabilities they're willing to provide and on what terms into this conflict. So if you think it's not working, it does work. Actually, one of the one of the big takeaways from this war is guess what? Nuclear weapons do have a role in shaping the decision making of various parties to a conflict, whether they're directly involved in it or materially involved in supporting it. Okay. Also, uh, escalation management and takes us into conversation on war termination, how to attain war termination on acceptable terms. This is, by the way, where the whole debate uh, entered on, you know, does Russian military, does Russia have a strategy of escalate to de-escalate? And the short answer is, I mean, that's a meaningless term because the point of all escalation is de-escalation. Nobody escalates just for the hell of it. It's just not a smart term. And then people came up with a second one, which is, well, they have a strategy of escalate to win. I'm like, who doesn't? I've never seen an es- a strategy of escalate to lose. Does that make any sense? No. Uh, I've never seen this. <laughs> no. <laughs> could, you, could you picture it on a PowerPoint brief? Rather than a strategy of escalate to lose, we're going to pursue a strategy of escalate to win. Well, it's, a, it's attributed to Grasimov, I believe. And I, I don't think the quote actually exists. It's erroneous. It's something that, that I think an American strategist ascribed to a, a more nuanced and complicated Russian discussion, which I'm sure we'll get to. Yeah. Well, well here's a well summary. What basically emerged is something that looks – uh, a lot closer to flexible response and attempt to pursue limited uh, nuclear war, limited nuclear employment options. Then I think what folks interpreted escalate to deescalate, because the way they're interpreting Russian nuclear strategy, the main difference, and that's actually going to be a very narrow difference, because the overall thrust, that is, I think the the uh, defense community's interpretation of Russian nuclear strategy, you know. 
isn't half wrong, which is that the main firebreak intellectually between our communities is at a certain point, the Russian military went from, you know, believing that independent conventional war was possible, and that's what the United States wanted, to then also believing that limited nuclear use was possible, particularly in specific contexts, and that this could be roughly calibrated without it leading to uncontrolled nuclear escalation. And the United States for a long time had been trying to drive a conversation that, no, it's not. Why? Because limited nuclear use in many respects are kryptonite. Okay, And as long as you can get countries to believe that there's no such thing as limited nuclear use, followed by the capacity to manage escalation, then there isn't any good offset to U.S. conventional superiority. Right. It's like it's a very, very it's very convenient for the power that has tech quantitative, but more importantly, qualitative superiority conventional. Okay, And, and, and Russians don't believe this. What you're describing is the very basics of deterrence. You know, it's when you go back to the way nuclear weapons, what nuclear weapons have shaped, let's say, Western interactions. And I would also say Russian interactions in terms of the war in Ukraine, which I think we should get to as well. What the Russians have basically signaled is that if there is overt direct intervention by Western powers on behalf of Ukraine, perhaps with troops or aircraft or anything along those lines, is that it could lead to escalation. And that's what Putin keeps saying over and over again, right? And what Biden says in response is if this basically spills over the border, we have all means necessary of reprisal. These are overt nuclear threats going on both sides. And so both sides are more or less uh, hedging or, or holding on to each other's red lines. It's just massively uncomfortable because nuclear weapons are so catastrophic, right? But that's the whole point of deterrence is that the punishment, the outcome of use is so bad and so catastrophic that we are uh, disincentivized to use them. It's not a positive carrot. It's a negative carrot. It's a coercive tool. You know, Aaron, the challenge is that for a lot of folks that work uh, in nuclear strategy realm, uh, limited nuclear use isn't all that catastrophic because nuclear weapons with relatively low yields can be used not with 100% precise effects, but fairly calibrated effects. And as the technologies evolved, a lot of folks look at it and say, mm, and okay, if one side uses one to 10 nuclear weapons, uh, what is, yeah, let's, let's put aside the, the actual direct impact of it wherever it is used. But the way they're looking at it isn't the way we often used to look at it, I think, through the 50s, 60s, and 70s, right? This is the big difference, that there isn't necessarily this belief that once nuclear weapons are used, it's going to result in strategic nuclear escalation, and that that risk, the risk of uncontrolled escalation, should deter nuclear use in general. And I think this is what's very worrisome for people looking at it. Biden's message to me, the, the way he kind of put it, was the best possible stab at deterring Russian nuclear use, which is not to say that the threat to Russia, realistically, is U.S. retaliation against Russia or against Russian forces. I know people immediately think like, why? That's a good threat. Is it? How would it undo nuclear damage done to Ukraine? How will it prevent a second nuclear strike against Ukraine? And why would striking any part of the Russian conventional force uh, as a form of punishment be a very good deterrent against the potential for nuclear use, either in an escalation management role or in a full-blown nuclear warfighting role? And my answer to that is the main utility of it is that it fundamentally could engender an escalatory cycle because it might then well be incumbent upon Russia to retaliate because Russia isn't Syria. It's not likely that Russia is necessarily going to just simply eat a conventional strike like that. Right? And 
whether conventional retaliation is, is a successful pursuit or not doesn't matter. The whole point of Biden's message is that an interaction between Russia and the United States could lead to uncontrolled escalation down the line and to make people very uncomfortable with the notion that, okay, they can just conduct a limited nuclear strike, try to achieve war termination on acceptable terms, and that's it, right? And it's the introduction of that risk that I think is very useful for both parties because it has the benefit of being true. There is a risk. It, it actually comes down to what individual political leaders choose to do in the room that night. You're interjecting the human element, which we can talk about as well. But I, I, I want to push you on that a little bit. The technologies have, have changed, right? And so the delivery systems, the basic physics behind a nuclear weapon are the same, right? But the delivery systems needed to deliver them have, have obviously evolved uh, from the 1950s, 1960s, 1970s. Uh, I would argue uh, a lot of them are also legacy of the 1980s. But the idea of uncontrolled escalation, right, has always been the check, people will say, on this idea that you could, say, use battlefield nuclear weapons, so-called tactical nuclear weapons, to, say, punch a hole in formations, as you were talking about, and have conventional forces you know, thrust through. Why is this any different then? So what you're talking about is what Biden is talking about, and perhaps for the listeners, we should say that we're, we're, we're now mentioning sort of escalation scenarios in Ukraine. Why is this fundamentally different than, say, you know, debates about going first over a contingency or between West and East Germany? In your opinion? Sure. Uh, I'll tell you why. Because the stakes are different and the scale of nuclear employment and vision is different. Okay. And so because the stakes you're seeing now are no longer the same ones as the stake as the stakes involved in a Soviet warship pact conflagration with NATO over the future of Europe. And Europe fundamentally back then being the economic one of the you know economic hubs, whereas today it's it's much more uh, the Asia Pacific, right? So the stakes were much greater. And secondarily, the nuclear operation involved, right? If you kind of looked at, uh, I think, Soviet nuclear war fighting plan, it involved such strategic use of nuclear weapons in Europe that the, probably the smallest iteration of it, there was no way that wasn't going to lead to large scale escalation, right? And when you reduce the stakes, and when you also reduce uh, the number of nuclear weapons involved in potential employment, uh, plus, keep in mind that we have very asymmetric our nuclear arsenals at this stage, right? Because Russia has a fairly robust and diverse theater nuclear arsenal that in some respects is competitive with a strategic nuclear arsenal. And, you know, the United States does not. I'm not saying the capability is, is such, such a big factor in, in terms of constraints, but it's important to keep that in mind. So um, I think that's, that's one of the leading reasons why. And also, we, you know, strategic cultures, we have slightly different philosophical approaches to the subject matter. I'll, I'll, I'll give you an example. You know, from years of conversations, I got the impression from my own defense community that they believed there was some sort of consensus between us and Russia coming out of the Cold War on nuclear strategy, on uh, questions of escalation, on questions of what was viable in terms of nuclear use and the utility of nuclear weapons. And I don't think that ever existed. I think there's just an impression people had on the U.S. policy side. But the truth is that actually the Soviet Union for much of the Cold War had a somewhat different take on nuclear weapons. Like there were all these stories about mutually assured destruction, right, for example. And the fact that the notion that this was reached a consensus between us and the Soviet Union. But that's not really true. 
if you actually look at a lot of Soviet thinking on, on nuclear use, nuclear strategy, that's not really the case. It's like a mytho- mythological uh, view of the Cold War. So we always have somewhat different perspectives on the subject, and we still do. And, you know, carrying forward, I, I, I see one of the biggest challenges that uh, the, the main deficit, the main deficit in, in the interpretation of Russian nuclear strategy over the last decade wasn't that they had a vision for potential limited nuclear use in certain scenarios, like a regional war, to manage escalation. Or also that they might use nuclear weapons if, let's say, they're losing on, on a set of conditions in, in a, in a large-scale war. But uh, I think we got overly worried that Russian nuclear strategy was uh, essentially a strategy of escalate to maintain. Preemptive use of nuclear weapons following a conventional offensive, right, to maintain the gains they had made, even though the conditions in the theater, right, on the ground in the war, do not necessitate nuclear use. There's preemptive attainment of war termination via coercive nuclear employment, okay? That's very logical because nuclear weapons certainly have a big deterring effect and an operative element of deterrence is coercion. So you can see that, long story short, they're pretty scary. But it's least it's clear to me from Ukraine that while this doesn't settle the debate, I'm going to be naughty here, it certainly is, provides a lot of evidence as to who was more right in this debate. Uh, and that's obviously an argument to say that I think that I think folks like myself and others who are saying that no, this is not the thrust of Russian nuclear strategy. We're proven much more right than the other side of this conversation. And I'm going to now use this podcast for incredibly uh, selfish purposes and lay out this case over the next minute uh, because I have the platform, which is to say, look, Russia's had ample opportunities, given the losses and defeats they've suffered in this war, to not just use nuclear weapons, but at the very least change nuclear force posture such that it would be visible to the United States to suggest that they're about to use nuclear weapons and see what they would get out of it, okay? And they haven't. Despite all the nuclear threats and so-called saber-rattling, there's been no evidence of that, right? The kind of signaling or even demonstrative nuclear use or nuclear testing that would really start a conversation between United States, Europeans, and Ukrainians about the prospect of nuclear use. Okay, so this like pours a lot of cold water over the proposition that Russia might have conducted, you know, any kind of uh, engagement sort of overt aggression against NATO and the Baltics, and then would have just preemptively used nuclear weapons because they've taken over 100,000 total casualties. This raises hard questions over exactly what it is that people actually think the Russian leadership plans to use uh, nuclear weapons if their strategy is escalate to de-escalate, and escalate to de-escalate actually means preemptive nuclear use, to avoid this exact kind of situation that they're in 10 months into the war, right? So my view of it is that it, it actually suggests strongly that no, Russian leadership is willing to expend the full arsenal of strategic conventional weapons. It is willing to take significant losses in general purpose forces. It is willing to take operational level defeats. And the criteria for nuclear use, theater nuclear use, is there, but it's much, much narrower than people may have thought it was. Oh, I completely agree. Your point is well taken that the sort of underpinnings of the deterrent relationship in this current conflict is far different than it was, say, like, let's just throw a date out there, 1986, you know, where you have the Warsaw Pact lined up against NATO. Ukraine is you know, not, not part of either of, of the uh, of the blocks, um, although the Warsaw Pact clearly doesn't exist anymore, but you get my point. And so that there could be some sort of 
incentive to use a nuclear weapons in this conflict because you could think or you could surmise that like it wouldn't escalate because it wouldn't necessarily directly threaten NATO forces. But that brings me back to your final point is that they haven't. You know, and like there was concerns, right? And like what you're talking about in terms of like more overt signaling is that like best as we can tell, I think it's pretty well established, is that Russian tactical nuclear weapons are kept in main sort of storage bunkers, right? And they would have to remove them from the storage bunkers and take them to their delivery vehicles, which oftentimes are very similar to their conventional uh, delivery vehicles or even the same delivery vehicle, and then put the warhead, I'm being simplistic here, on top of the delivery vehicle. And this is all something that would be seen. Right. And so this could be a very robust signal. It's like not only is Putin sort of like, I hate this term, but like flexing the nuclear muscles, but he's backing it up by actually bringing the stuff out of the garage. He hasn't done that so far as we can tell. And so he has been, quote unquote, deterred or they have chosen not to use it. The concern that people has is that exactly as you said, he's losing. And so if he continues to lose, will he sort of throw everything at the wall? And I know this is the last question that we could go another 45 minutes on, but uh, we both have to go in about five minutes for meetings. You know, what are your thoughts on that? Because that's where people are concerned, is that he'll start throwing everything at the wall to prevent an actual catastrophic loss. So let me make a couple points there. First, is a bit of debate whether or not Russia would fall through coercive demonstrations to imply nuclear use or if they would just potentially do it. And the reason why is you're, you, you have to question the condition under which they would use it. And increasingly, it looks like the most probable condition is if there's a cascade collapse of Russian forces or real loss of cohesion in the theater, such that they can no longer sustain the war. And that would then, that would then quickly potentially put Crimea under threat and it would mean a strategic defeat. Now, my view of it is a bit kind of balanced, but I don't think it's very optimistic, which is first, the risk of nuclear use right now is relatively low because Russia has gone through the mobilization and actually stabilized a lot of the lines in the front. Okay, And, and the Russian leadership will see what they can get on mobilization and the strike campaign in Ukraine before ever having to consider nuclear use. That's very straightforward at this point, obvious. Okay? Second, the long-term risk of nuclear use in this war has grown because the regime fully committed themselves to the war with no real good ways out back in September. So now, if there is a major breakthrough of like this, they'll be put to a decision. A time-compressed decision, right? And that's the issue of, are they going to build out demonstrations, demonstrative use, or are they going to simply fall through with nuclear use? And here, I'll just add, the international price for nuclear use is very high. It's a significant deterrent. But the cost uh, scales rapidly with use of one nuclear weapons and then levels off after that with any number of nuclear weapons thereafter. That is, if you're going to use one nuclear weapon, uh, in many respects, you might as well use a dozen or something of that nature. I'm not trying to be like Dr. Strange loving about it, but just to be frank, right? If you're going to follow through with nuclear use and take all the reputational risk and costs, probably going to do, probably going to use it to achieve military effects. Last two points on this. I've heard a lot of whistling past the graveyard over the course of this fall, such as nuclear weapons don't have battlefield effects. Yes, they do. Nuclear weapons are not just large explosive bombs. Second, it would take Russia, Russia would have to use multiple nuclear weapons to change the conventional situation on the ground. Yes. Bad news, they have them. They actually have a lot of them and the means of delivery still. And they make missiles on a monthly basis, okay, still. So this is not a point in the service of a very, uh, in my view, very sustainable argument. Okay, third, I don't think battlefield nuclear use is the most likely form of implementation. A lot of Russian nuclear writing strategies suggest nuclear employment against critical targets, say critically important targets of the military whether it's bases, command and control points, logistics, bridging, what have you, 
rather than actual dropping nuclear weapons on company or battalion-sized targets. Probably should think of it more in this sense. But neither or should make anyone particularly comfortable. You know, unless that, okay, I'm not going to assign uh, any numbers to the risk of nuclear use because I hate the sort of false certainty of numbers to qualitative inference where you say it's like, you know, this percentage and that's it. There's no real basis for it. But I do think it's fair to say that the likelihood of nuclear escalation right now is highest than it's ever been since 1983, Abel Archer, on the one hand. On the other hand, I do not hold with folks. And here, yeah, I'll, I'll pick a fight with someone I know, Jeremy Shapiro, that we are very logically heading down a path of nuclear escalation that this is inevitable. I don't see anything inevitable about this in the course of this war. I really don't. I think, yeah, I think it's actually quite contingent. And at the end of the day, it will come down uh, to whether or not the conditions are met. You're really looking at, at, at two separate risks. Whether or not the conditions will be met such that Russian leadership has to deliberate nuclear use and nuclear escalation. And then the second one, and this is a kind of thornier one where I'm sure everybody has an opinion and, and many people's opinions are valid, whether or not they would go through with it. Okay, And that has a lot to do with kind of your version of Vladimir Putin and, what you, and, and, and how you see him in his decision making. So you're really evaluating two different risks, the likelihood that we would actually get there and then the likelihood that they might actually fall through with it. And people fall, I think, uh, anywhere on the spectrum on those assumptions. But the only thing I'll say is that it's clear that from a lot of work and writing and investigation of evolution of Russian military thought, uh, that they have the concept of operations, they have the thinking and the rationale for why they might do it, okay? It's not nearly as escalatory or preemptive than some folks assumed on the one hand, however, but it is also not something that we can just ignore. If the Russian political leadership calls for nuclear options, rest assured the Russian military will come up with several plans for them and the forces that can execute to them. And last point, please no intellectual alibis, either on the assumption that uh, uh, Russian forces might not follow through with an order to use nuclear weapons. Yeah, don't plan to win the lottery. Second, on the assumption that uh, Russian non-strategic nuclear weapons have somehow been stored in some ancient warehouse next to like, uh, like something out of Raiders of the Lost Ark, and no one has ever tested them or refurbished them or reassembled them, and that they're old and ancient, they might not work. Uh, there's not much evidence for that argument either. So be careful in the arguments that nuclear weapons either won't work or people won't follow through with the order to use them because they're not good ones to, to, to plan around. At least that's that's my personal opinion. You know, everybody else is welcome to their own. Well, you know, it is your podcast, uh, even though you let me host today. Uh, so we're going to have to leave it there. Although I think the good news for listeners uh, and for you and I is that there's multiple different threads I want to pull on for future episodes uh, as we continue this podcast in the future for War on the Rocks members. Mike, do you have any last words before we sign off here? You know, whenever I've discussed the topic of nuclear strategy and nuclear escalation, as soon as I'm done uh, talking about it, the, the commentator, the moderator says, well, it's sad we have to end as pessimistic note. And I'm not sure how we can talk about nuclear escalation and end it on an incredibly optimistic note, right? I think the good news side, the good news here is that it's not something that is inevitable and folks shouldn't use it as something that, that fundamentally deters a lot of the thinking and approach to, let's say, this specific conflict in Ukraine. But I have heard way too much wishful thinking and discourse, I think, just factually incorrect over the last couple of months on what nuclear weapons can do, what they have done, and how people have thought about nuclear strategy uh, over the course of the Cold War. Yeah. And, and some of what I said here is very debatable, too, just to be frank. 
you always do have to end on a pessimistic note um, uh, when you're talking about nuclear weapons, because the, as I like to say, the root word of deterrence is terror. <laughs> and it's terror because nuclear weapons are awful. And what we're talking about here um, is seriously catastrophic effects, even if they do have um, uh, obvious effects or tangible potential benefits for an employing power if they can try and limit escalation. Uh, with that, we have to limit the time because um, I know you have to go, okay. Mike. So with that, thank you, everybody, for listening to The Russia Contingency with Michael Kaufman. As I said, I'm Aaron Stein, uh, Chief Content Officer at War on the Rocks. And every once in a while, I will pop on to host the show so that Mike can talk about topics of interest, in this case, nuclear escalations. With that, Mike, thanks for joining your own show. Always good to reconnect and, and do another episode together. All right. And for that, thanks, everybody, for listening.